0: From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome
1: back to the big event and welcome back to the intro. Kevin Fagan.
2: Hey, glad to be here.
1: Yeah, this is an interesting one. I feel like we need to set it up because we have Jesse Thorne and Lee Thorne on. Jesse Thorne is a podcaster, broadcaster, interviewer. And you know them both. You, you met Jesse when he was a little kid.
2: Yeah, I did. I, I thought he was a uh, rambunctious kid headed for trouble, and, and he was a, <laughs> you know, trouble in a good way. Uh, but Lee, I met uh, through his work as a, as a veteran, a military veteran. He had fought in the Vietnam War. Uh, and come out and become a founder of the Veterans for Peace organization uh-huh. with uh, Ron Kovic and John Kerry, and you know they they shook they shook the world up pretty good back then. And as the years went by, uh, Lee decided he wanted to to you know give back, as they say, and help repair the country that he had bombed the hell out of, and that was Laos, uh, foremost in his mind. And I got a hold of him through other vets that I'd been writing about. They said, this, this guy Lee's really onto something. He had loaded up a couple of backpacks and went to Laos to try to deliver medical supplies to a really poor village. Yeah. He had met uh, some Laotian people here in America who said, you know, this is a need. And that sparked something in him. And so I wrote about him early on. And eventually I went to Laos with him and to Thailand. And we spent <laughs> a month over there. And it was a trip.
1: So Jesse, I'm a podcaster now. My introduction to podcasting really was through Jesse. And uh, there are a lot of podcasters who can say that. Jesse, you think of two short selling albums out of the back of his trunk. You think of punk rockers and the DIY movement Mm -hmm. to get people to listen to their music. I think Jesse's going to be seen that way with podcasting. And he's an interviewer on the program Bullseye, which is on NPR. So he's certainly an impressive interviewer and, and broadcaster in his own right. So I love that you and I were friends. We've I've had you on this podcast several times. Know these two people, father and son, for two completely different things. And uh, I invited Jesse on and invited his dad to come along, invited you to come along. I didn't know how it was going to go. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I, I thought it was really interesting just seeing these two people and how their lives sort of inter- interconnect, even though they're two very different people.
2: Yeah, I, and I thought it made a lot of sense, because Lee was very smart and very directed and very socially minded, uh, super aware. It made sense that Jesse came from him and wound up doing this interesting thing. Yeah. Uh, Lee had... God, the stuff he did in Laos, he, he, he helped start a coffee operation. He helped hook up a, a village to the internet, dug wells. He really went at it. And have, having a father like that clearly, to me, inspired Jesse to go out and do big things.
1: So Father and Sunday. I think we should just have fathers and sons on the podcast from now on. It, <laughs> yeah. it went really well. We're your concierge for Culture in the Bay Area. I'm Peter Hartlaub, and this is The Big Event. Welcome to the big event. Welcome, Jesse Thorne, Lee Thorne. Thank you. And Kevin Fagan, my colleague at The Chronicle. Hey. This is a father-son podcast, and and I need to do more of these. Um, Boots Riley's father is super awesome, and I didn't think Mm -hmm. until later to get him on. But uh, Jesse, podcaster extraordinaire.
3: Yeah, or at least moderate air, yeah, sure.
1: (laughs) I, I made the comparison, like... Bill Walsh has his coaching tree, and you have your podcasting tree. You've influenced a lot of people, including myself. I send little questions, and you are really generous. So thank you very much, sir.
3: Would you say you're
1: George Seifert or Mike Holmgren? (laughs) I think I'm more like Bob McKittrick. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) I don't even think I've had my own team yet, but um, offensive line coach. And Lee, welcome to The Chronicle. Thank you. I've been digging through the archives and uh, reading a lot about you, but you and Kevin, you guys went to... We
2: went to Laos in uh, mm -hmm. about 2002 or so.
1: This is back when the Chronicle had go to Laos money.
2: Oh, we did, yeah. I I spent a month with Lee in Laos. It was an amazing trip.
0: It was for me, too.
1: Yeah, so Jesse, you didn't start in radio, you didn't start in podcasting, were you doing other artistic things
3: here? What was kind of your artistic awakening in the Bay Area? Well, I went to School of the Arts in San Francisco. So I I had gone to a fancy, progressive, private school in Hillsboro. I grew up in, in the mission sort of, uh, my dad lived towards Bernal Heights. Um, uh, and I had gone to this fancy private middle school and had not graduated from it and um, I had been socially promoted out of it uh, without a diploma and so they didn't recommend me for any of the fancy private high schools and if you're a scholarship kid in private school you have to stay in good standing um, and so I, uh, I auditioned to go to School of the Arts um, back when the campus was uh, down by San Francisco State and got in as an actor so mm-hmm. I did four years of theater at School of the Arts, and um, I don't think I ever necessarily thought that I would become an actor because I was bad at memorizing and acting, uh, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was okay at acting. I had some, some acting merit, but um, it was a really special, amazing experience to go there. I mean, then as as it may be now, it was a there was not a lot of academics going on at the school but to be in a place where you got like really serious pre-professional training and got to be with other kids who wanted to be there and where you know like being artistic and weird was expected um and celebrated rather than weird was a really wonderful thing so then I went on to UC Santa Cruz and and ended up at the college radio station there which is how I ended up you know Mm. basically in in uh podcasting but it was definitely that experience at soda that really um really set my course and I've actually I've I've like met like um you know Margaret Cho and all, all these different um soda alumni over the years um and it's we always kind of share that experience of like how great it is to get to go to a like a, a, a school that's like a secret um <laughs> just for weirdos mm-hmm. but is also in a lot of ways just a regular public high school
1: and you said there was like math and science there and other things too. yeah sort of <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i mean I,
3: I had a teacher i had a government teacher who used to call me professor thorn in class because i would be like i would like raise my hand and i would be like but i I think there's like three branches of the federal government, right? Are you forgetting Are you forgetting the judicial branch? And I'll be like, "You're right, Professor Thorne. Yeah. and um yeah, there was it was a real mixed bag on the academic side. good good things and bad things, and I think a relatively large number of bright bright students. But yeah, it was like four hours a day probably of of arts mm-hmm. education. And uh, it was founded by Ruth Asawa, the great San Francisco artist, and she used to be around. Like she just—I be... heard she
1: was like gardening. I was so, talking yeah. to her,
3: art critic, that she would just—yeah, she would absolutely. That's what I was about to say. She she kept up the, uh, she kept up the gardens at the school. The school had been like—I uh, I had heard. I think this is true, but I, at the time I had heard that the campus had been a an elementary school for kids with special needs. So all of the all of the water fountains were like a foot and a half off the ground mm-hmm. <laughs> and all of the toilets. <laughs> and the heat didn't work uh, but they couldn't fix it because there was asbestos. So if they would disturb the asbestos <laughs> wow. if they fixed the heat. Mm. And you know it's cold down there by San Francisco State and yeah. it was, you know, our theater was a third of like a of a basketball court that they'd walled in and built and now, these days they're at the campus of McAteer, and they have they have some really nice facilities. But it was definitely, you know, it was a it was an also ran.
2: Weren't you in a rock band too?
3: No, I my brother my brother my youngest mm-hmm. brother Brendan was it was and is a a very accomplished musician, mm-hmm. and he actually went to school of the arts many years later. He's fourteen years younger than me, and he was in the he was in the vocal department at school of the arts. How did, how did Lee get such talented uh, artistic kids? What happened? I know, without any talent himself. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: Well, I got hit in the head. Oh, there yeah. you go. <laughs> it worked.
1: <laughs> so I, I see elements of improv and comedy in your in your podcast. Um, Bullseye's an interview podcast, Jordan, Jesse Go, comedy podcast, uh, you're the bailiff on Judge John Hodgman. But how were you as an actor? I mean,
3: what what were you like in high school? You, you made a little self deprecating remark, but I'm wondering. I mean, I think to some extent, I don't know if this is what Phil Rayher, the he just just retired, was the boss of the theater department at, at School of the Arts. Um, I don't know if this is what he would say. Perhaps because he has probably revised my talent upward, uh, given that I have a small public profile now. But um, I think basically, like if you were a boy who could do your lines with the right cadence, uh, and you were 13 and admitted that you wanted to go to theater high school, you could get into school <laughs> arts. Yeah. It was, the, cut, the competition was profoundly cutthroat for uh, the girls at that age. <laughs> um, and there are actually, one of my classmates, Aya Cash, is a very successful actress, she's on You're the Worst on FX, um, like a lot of talent there. Um, but yeah, I was in uh, I was in the Three Penny Opera. Nice. Uh, at one time on uh, Jordan Jesse Go, John Ross Bowie, who's a comic actor, who's on um, wish what's, what's the show with the Mini Driver? And um, uh, so anyway, he's on network television. I ne- yeah, star of a hit network television show. But um, uh, he was making fun of me for having gone to an arts high school, and he was like. Come on, what, did, what, what, what musical were you in in high school? The Three Penny Opera? And I was like, yes, I was literally in the Three Penny <laughs> Opera. Also, Mother Courage and Her Children. Um, and we did, I mean, there was like a musical production. I was in Little Shop of Horrors. That was probably the closest to my actual skills. But like, we did Commedia dell'arte. We did Afro-Haitian Dance. Um, that's serious yeah we did Shakespeare you know every year a kid from soda would be in the national Shakespeare competition winning Um, and but for me uh, I think I could always fake being an actor as then as now by knowing how to read my line immediately Uh, but accessing emotional depth was a challenge for me then, again then <laughs> as now um so yeah so like little shop it was like you know i was the dentist and stuff and i can't really sing but uh that was as close as i ever got to uh until of course i became a professional actor years <laughs> later with my one acting credit on imdb what, what or, is that <laughs> i was so... on i was on comedy bang bang on ifc one time <laughs> okay, i sure. played a i played a smug prick uh and um, they and it's kind of typecast, but it's okay. Well,
2: the dentist is a psycho. That's the one that Steve Martin played in the movie. Is not it absolutely? Yeah, that's pretty hardcore. I
3: yeah. thought
1: I might have missed you. And sorry to bother you because there were a lot of little cameos. <laughs> there. were like, "Yeah, it's yeah. come what's out." Up, what's up,
3: Boots? How come you didn't put me? You got NATO green in there. You got Kamau in there. Yeah, um, yeah I did. Um, I did improv and in, in college and uh, eventually sketch comedy. Actually, the San Francisco sketch comedy group Casper Hauser, who are real brilliant geniuses. We saw them in an 826 benefit, like the first or second year that 826 opened. We were maybe juniors in college. And we thought, this is the most amazing thing. What are these people doing? Why are these people not on television? Like, how could anyone? It turns out that they're all like doctors and lawyers and stuff, and that's why they don't. Have a TV show, they it would be a pay cut, but <laughs> um, but they came down to our show and we were like playing bits that we'd made for our college radio show, mm-hmm. and they one of them said, "Oh, this is really good." So you guys do sketch comedy, and my co-host at the time, Jordan, uh, said, "Who's now does Jordan Jesse go with me?" He was like, "Yeah, we do," <laughs> and they, they were like, "Well, we could get you a gig in San Francisco if you want," and Jordan was like, "Great." So then they left and we were like, uh, I guess we have a sketch comedy group now. <laughs> we better write some sketches. And we did, uh, yeah, we did. We toured with sketch comedy for a few years. What was the name? of am sorry, the it was called is... Prank the Dean.
1: Prank the Dean. And did you do an early sketch fest? Like we did, yeah, I mean,
3: I think we did sketch fest five or four or five. Um, and I worked for Sketchfest for a little while after I finished college. Um, yeah, I've been in, I think I've been in every Sketchfest for like the last 15
1: years. (laughs) I should mention that's why you're here. Yeah. Your annual, uh, Swallows to Capistrano. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Sketchfest. So just to complete that, so you, you're in Santa Cruz, you're working on radio. How does that turn into podcasting? And
3: basically I had a family friend, um, who, was the kind of guy who read Wired magazine in the early to mid-90s. And, you know, he was just that kind of guy who paid attention, was, knew what cyberpunk was and that kind of thing. And when I graduated from college, I was driving back. I was living at my mom's house in San Francisco, borrowing her car once a week to drive to Santa Cruz to do my college radio show, which was very sad. Mm-hmm. And... um I had a I had with this family friend. He emailed me. He said, "There's this new thing called podcasting. You should look into it, don't you? Do radio?" And I figured at the time, I was like, "Well, if we do a prank the dean show for a hundred people, I'm happy. We can get a hundred people to listen to it by podcast. Then <laughs> I guess it's worth a few hours of work." And um, that kind of that was 2004, and I've you know, my my career has grown with and alongside podcasting ever since. I mean, it was probably ten years before that was my job, um, but it it's a little little by little accreted uh, a mortgage.
1: Well, no wow. one would make fun of you now. You own Maximum Fun, and you yep. have a hit after hit bubble. And yep. uh, was this year executive producer on that? Yeah, yeah, my
3: Jordan actually, my my. Best buddy from college, who I still do a podcast with, created that. He's a television comedy writer, and we're working on it for TV. And uh, it's fantastic.
1: Yeah. Um, I listen to four regularly, four of of your Max Fun podcasts, and that's that's the fourth. Uh, just added that one. It's fantastic. Now no one would make fun of you. No one would make fun of podcasting. What about back then? Were, were people trying to warn you away from this? Or? I
3: think people just people were just baffled they're like why why would you want that why would you do that and it's funny like I sometimes think maybe if I was five years younger I might be a filmmaker now because I'm just old enough at 37 that when I was in my like creative growth years as a like 18 to 24 year old a camera was a little too expensive for me to buy yeah but recording equipment is actually pretty cheap <laughs> yeah. so um it was you know it's kind of like uh it was you know a little bit like uh, grandmaster flash inventing scratching because all he had was his parents turntable you know um and so it was it was more it, it was more just like trying to convince anybody that they should give me any kind of job when it seemed like I was more interested in driving to Santa Cruz to do my college radio (laughs) shows. (laughs) And certainly nobody at, you know, KZSC in Santa Cruz where we did the show is a wonderful community radio station that's really vibrant, but like, the hit shows on that station were not necessarily my show. It was like the reggae show and the folk music show, just as you would expect. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know? yeah. It's
1: Skew's a little older, too. I've listened to it yeah. while passing through Aptus or Calistoga. Yeah. Right? So,
3: you know, you get a nice show hosted by a, a white guy with dreadlocks talking in patois, <laughs> or a folk show hosted by a lady who has a, a dog with a handkerchief uh, yeah. in there with her. I, I ask you about the early days
1: because I co-founded the first blog at the Chronicle and I remember every that one of blog. you guys mm. Kevin who um the poop my parenting blog mm-hmm. was a spinoff I remember every single person who came up to me and made fun of me about it well, well, I yeah, mean I course. never
3: I could never get a job in legacy media I mean that's ultimately like my entire career is defined by my inability to get a job yeah like I really I applied for so many jobs in radio of so many kinds and so many jobs in television of so many kinds and Just couldn't get anywhere because I think people, you know, some combination of, oh, I was the news director of the college radio station in Santa Cruz is not that impressive. But also I think maybe people kind of sniffed out that like I was already doing a thing and that was where my heart was. Um, So, yeah, like I never, (laughs) I still have never had like a boss in radio, which I feel like I'm really missing a lot. Like I, I did an entire show called the turnaround about interviewing Yeah, that I did basically because I was like, I have literally never had uh, someone to tell me how to do my job better. And I was like really worried that I had like, that I was basically like a, a folk artist (laughs) who like veered off into my own insane world of how to do it. And there was like a a good way to do it that I could have just known and everything would be way easier.
2: (laughs) You sound like a lot of comedians I know. know? (laughs) And and the whole podcasting thing reminds me of the thirties with radio.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think my
2: grandparents, you know, thought, wow, what an amazing thing. It's like
3: that on steroids. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, um, the thing about podcasting that's really wonderful is, the radio industry in the United States had a business structure that led to an almost total lack of innovation or, and certainly Mm. of anything that I would think is interesting. Like there's public radio was the only place that could, um, and especially big public radio institutions was the only place that could get basically enough people together to work on something that you could do anything more ambitious than a call in talk show, you know, than like Dr. Laura or something like that. And even those Dr. Laura's, they didn't even invent that kind of radio syndication um, after the breakup of the big radio networks until, you know, the late eighties, early nineties. So there was just no comedy at all on the radio. There's, you know, all these things and podcasting, has become a way for like many of my good friends are stand up comics and it's a way for them to have a relationship with an audience that doesn't involve them having to like physically be in the same room as the audience which is a tough way to build an audience you know it's a it takes that's slow and hard and so you can it, they have similar skill sets and you have a you can you know you can really benefit from from the kind of connection you get from podcasting because it's so personal and feels like a friend
2: the trick is how do you make money out of it there for there's a lot of innovators well, i didn't for a long time that was <laughs> my that was my system for the first <laughs> yeah.
3: uh, eight years i mean we always i think because my dad my dad was an organizer my whole childhood um and one of the things he did was fundraising consulting um and I think I just kind of grew up around that. And he was starting the Jai Foundation when I was uh, in my late teens, which is how you got to know him, Ken. right? Yeah. And I always, I always had the ex- I, I, I always had the expectation that it was good and okay for what I was doing to be supported by the audience directly. Um, and so I kind of built it, built Maximum Fun, my company, like it was a public radio station and that really helped us weather the, that and just the kind of gen, my general fear of risk slash DIY ethic, um, uh, you know, helped us avoid the boom and bust cycle of, you know, online media because, once you build those, once you, if, if your goal is to build the kind of relationship with your audience that would lead them to give you money that they totally don't have to give you, <laughs> um, then you have something that is, that, that is like strong and lasting. And, you know, I just, we just built it every year, a little more, a little more, a little more. And one day it was like, you know what, my, we moved to Los Angeles so my wife could go to law school. It was like, I'm not going to get a job we're just going to, I'm just going to do this. And it was like three years of making $12,000 a year and four years maybe. And then it was like, oh, like we're up to $50,000 a year. Maybe we could hire someone for a few hours a week. You know, oh, we're up to $100,000 a year. And now we're, you know, I'd, we'd, we're trying to buy a building and we have 15 employees and 30 shows and and it's all You know, we make money from other sources as well, but it really still is about a community of people who care about what we do and just, you know, send us five bucks a month or whatever. I I tell people that I've I've, I've learned more cool things from Jesse
1: Thorne. um, I I learn new things accidentally often, and uh, it's a great show that way. The other thing I think about Bullseye is you rep the bay,
3: (laughs) <laughs> like heavily and continue to <laughs> to the point of anger by non Bay Area listeners. Yeah, it's almost well, aggressively. Yeah, and
1: uh, I wanted to ask you about that. You you live in Los Angeles, but you still really connect with the Bay Area. Yeah, I mean, I think
3: like. I I um I was asking my therapist about this. <laughs> <laughs> Not that long Always ago a good idea. <laughs> and because i had a i have a very i feel like i have a very unusually emotional relationship with i mean everyone has an emotional relationship with the place they came from yeah. but i it's one that i've maintained in my life i think, and almost like tended to. And part of it is the narcissism of everyone in San Francisco, which is like, oh, we live in the greatest city in the world, right? That you only get perspective on when you leave. Not That's not to say that I disagree. Yeah, <laughs> I right. still kind of think it is. But um, uh, but part of it, I think, is just like, um, I, you know, my, my folks were divorced when I was very young. And um, uh, both of my parents were, are, are great parents. Um, but I think I, I had a, I had a, like a, as my mom's only child and my dad's only child until I I was like eight, um, uh, I, I had a kind of, and as a child of divorce, I had kind of like an independent life by the time I was 12, you know, like I, I went to school on the bus by myself starting in second grade because, Both of my parents, neither of my parents made a lot of money and they had to work and they would take me to the bus stop and everything. But I was on the 49 Van Ness mission. It stopped right in front of my school, but like, uh, you know, like that was, they they couldn't not work the two hours a day that it would take to take to ride on the bus with me. Um, And uh, so I think I always had, you know, I always had kind of a relationship with the neighborhood that I grew up in that in some ways was um like a th- like a third parent and a very reliable um part of my life. I mean I I've heard my dad talk about um uh in his own childhood in in Kansas City and Glendale uh that church was that kind of place for him like an out of out, other than the house like, reliable place. And I think I felt that way about, like, walking to the Salvation Army on Valencia Street. And it always kind of defined who I was and, like, how I thought about the world. And in doing Bullseye, I've talked to so many people about, like, why did you become an artist? And it's so common to hear the story of someone wanting to escape the stultifying situation in which they grew up and for me it i i always felt the opposite like i had to figure out who i was in the context of a place and a world you know in in a in an arts high school and in a you know special middle school for uh smart boys <laughs> can and, i just
1: say the name because we both went oh, to the n- same yeah school. Nueva. yeah Nueva. It, it, there's like 12 people at the school yeah and wow we happen to be one of them they, you go on hikes I had a, a math school. I had a math teacher. There were like four math geniuses in my class, and there was a math teacher, and they just gave me a book, and I could read it or not. Um, yeah, oh, I love it was that. it was different. Yeah. I had but, very
3: mi- I had very mixed I had a very mixed experience there. But um uh, yeah. but like I, I I I loved where I was from. Like I never had any the first ambivalent feelings I remember having about where I was from, were, um, you know when. Uh, I, I grew up sort of, as I said, in the sort of mission Neu Valley, towards Noy Valley and Bernal Heights when I was in my teens. And um, I think when the first Web 1.0 wave came in, I, I remember feeling a little scared and ambivalent about the neighborhood. But b- besides that, never. And like, I've talked actually, you've had Kamau Bell on the show. Mm-hmm. And I've known Kamau Bell since I was in college. And he used to do this bit in fact, that I saw him do at that 826 benefit all those years ago at the, at the Magic Theater where he had, he was probably, I guess he must have been two years from Chicago in San Francisco and, and he had this bit where he ate his first San Francisco burrito mm-hmm. and he looks at it and he goes, you've been talking a lot of shit burrito. <laughs> <laughs> and I, he came on my show and he was talking about how when he when he stopped doing observational humor and started doing political humor he felt like he was really being himself and I was like that's really funny Kamau because when I saw you doing observational humor about burritos I felt like you were talking about my identity <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> it's like like in the like in the same way that, that Kamau's uh, identity is built on his mom going from black bookstore to black bookstore selling <laughs> books of inspirational quotes that she. Self-published, Like, my identity is built on its-its. Its-its <laughs> <laughs> are great.
2: Yeah. You know what strikes me about this is because I spent a lot of time with, with your dad before we went to Laos and after Laos. And you kids, you and your brother, I'd say, Lee, how are those kids? And, uh, you know, oh, they do music and they do acting. And uh, it, it, he, he lets you be who you were. And, and 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 the way that, that you have built your own life reminds me so much of your dad because, mm-hmm. Lee, you, you really built your own thing mm-hmm. and took it far and took it hard mm-hmm. a, in a very difficult uh, uh, a difficult field of, of helping Laotian yeah. villages. Well,
1: maybe. I want to talk about that, and let's get the background because I did a very deep dive on Lee Thorne in the last couple days and a fascinating, fascinating background with a lot of twists and turns. Uh, Kevin, I feel like you're the Lee Thorne, historian here though and we have Lee Thorne here a so. living
2: history I, Lee Thorne is dear in my heart cuz I, mm-hmm. I, what I saw and experienced with, with you in, in Laos and, and uh, really moved me and, and I have well, been in this Let's start a long with time.
1: Vietnam. In mm-hmm. Vietnam uh, navy mm-hmm. navy yeah Yeah and uh, you served and uh, what did you do in the navy?
0: I was I worked on a on the uh, a carrier Airplane
3: carrier, you know. mm-hmm. and uh, I was uh, do you loaded bombs? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. loaded <laughs> bombs, bombs and, and ran the projector as well. That's, oh, the, <laughs> that's, yeah. right. that's right. the projector was better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but not that great because the projector also showed the the tail films from the from right. the planes. Yeah. But he volunteered at the very beginning of the war, um, and ended up the carrier ended up. Involved in the secret wars in Southeast Asia, particularly in Laos, right? Um, and uh, served in was sixty-one and sixty-two. Does that sound right? I think yeah. that's right.
2: Okay. Yeah. yeah, right around then. And it, and, it, and it, it, you were like Ron Kovac in that you were you volunteered patriotically. Mm-hmm. You were, you know, a good American boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the end of the war, you were horrified mm-hmm. by by what you had done. Mm-hmm. And then all these years later, you you wanted to do reparations.
3: Mm-hmm. So yeah. he immediately, I mean, the, when he came back, he went to Berkeley and um, was immediately involved in organizing. And that's actually some of the... I think we have, actually. Yeah, this one the, is from 67 when article. my dad was a junior. And they're talking about at Berkeley, they're going to have a meeting to decide... Uh, a meeting to talk about the role of the university in a democratic society with (laughs) Earl Warren and John Kenneth Galbraith. (laughs) And my dad organized a group uh, to protest... and demand that the faculty who are involved in this meeting stay afterwards to work with the students to address the real problems of the community. (laughs) My dad says, although we don't want to interrupt their program, explained Lee Thorne, a junior in political science and spokesman for the group, we're going to carry signs of protest in order to point out the real problems of the university. Thorne said his group, the Committee for Student Participation would chant its demand for the meeting and boo faculty members who leave the meeting. (laughs) <laughs> pretty forceful <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's really it's really amazing i mean they they were or they were organizing um uh they were organizing vets right away
2: mm-hmm.
3: um and getting that at that point get just connecting with the uh sometimes with the other the people airport. yeah oh yeah? yeah
1: at the airport you said
0: sometimes uh, at yeah. the airport because um people Come and go at different times, so I had been there a little earlier than most of the people I knew, but which is probably one of the reasons I got involved in uh, Vets for Peace. But actually, we had a lot of fun.
3: (laughs) (laughs) You You go and and eventually organizing even uh, even active active. Service members, right? Leafleting and oh, yeah. giving people instructions on how to go AWOL and stuff like or that. that <laughs> <laughs> I think, I'm pretty sure you told me that one time. Yeah, well, I don't think that. <laughs> I don't think. Subversive. I don't think there's any MPs yeah. here. <laughs> right.
1: Okay. We have a fantastic photo of you, Lee, oh. leaning out of uh, the GI coffee house. It looks like like the back of a van, maybe. Um, well, Oakland's, I, yeah. Oakland's Pentagon first in the Bay Area. Uh, this yeah. is a what is this a coffee house for yeah. who for
0: it's a, it was a gi coffee house that uh, you know that at that time there was a lot of guys getting out and uh so you know i like coffee
3: <laughs> <laughs> but i mean it was like the the issue the main thing was like you couldn't go to the vfw hall mm-hmm. especially if you were anti-war right yeah. but you still wanted to have a place for fellowship and so on and so forth for vets who had had this experience and shared this experience just like any vet does. Yeah,
0: Yeah, it was PTSD. And, you know, I still got it. It's, and it was, it's very, it's, um, there's a lot of it around. (laughs) And at that time, nobody was saying that. And um, we were, You know, John Kerry was involved in that, too. Mm -hmm. John was an officer, but I I was just uh, another guy. And, you know, it it was, you know, you can tell, it was a tough time.
1: Yeah. Kevin and Lee, how did you guys meet?
2: You called me because uh, you and your friend were going to load up a couple of backpacks and go to a village Mm -hmm. in Laos with some medical supplies. And I thought, well, isn't that weird? uh that's that's different that's strange and and so i wrote it from here and you guys went over did your thing and uh, uh and then came back and i wrote another article i believe and then you got determined to go do more hmm. uh and you had uh lee felsenstein invent a pedal powered computer yeah. uh yeah. on a bicycle and you wow. said i'm gonna do- take this wacky bicycle over there to the village in laos and uh, Vin Ch- and it wasn't Vinchon, it was, it was quite a few miles outside mm-hmm. the, main, yeah. the main town. And uh, and I got the editor to clear me to go. And then, after you know, getting to, to, to go deeper with you, mm-hmm. you were doing coffee, you knew special forces who were clearing bomb fields. Mm-hmm. Uh, I it was like a, uh, a, a play field for me. I did, mm-hmm. I think, nine stories out of there with you, and, and then Ooh. cut loose with the bomb guys. I, for a I while. counted
1: 27 no Kevin,
3: no I'm kidding basically my my dad had worked my dad worked with v v a w Vietnam veterans against mm. the war and v f p vets for peace, yeah. uh, one of which was the east Coast, one of which was the west coast, and they merged one of them was founded by John Kerry on the east coast and um had worked with them i mean into my childhood, I was born in nineteen eighty one so he was still we were still going to protests of you know the uh you know invasions of in central america and so on and so forth when i was a little kid but had also in the 80s worked a lot with ed roberts who had been his uh friend and contemporary at berkeley and ended up becoming a uh Disability the, rights. Yeah exactly yeah. the the leader of the independent living movement mm-hmm. and Wonderful there there's leader. yeah and there's mm-hmm. now a uh, there's a state holiday na- named after him mm-hmm. really yeah no, yeah, so great. Ed was Ed was my when I was a kid, Ed was my dad's best friend, and they worked together a lot. And um, she, Ed so when I was a teenager in the mid 90s, um, my dad had gone to had gotten his disability, um, which was a really big deal in our family um, yeah. for his PTSD, and had gone to business school and uh, uh, with using VA benefits. And had um, met this woman named Buntan, who is a Lao American, and her family were refugees from uh, the same parts of Laos that my father's carrier bombed. Mm-hmm. And um, they worked together to do this first mission with my dad's childhood best friend um, you know they, they they just my dad had had not been back since then and and wanted to go and in so doing, he'd had two priorities: one was to do some reconciliation work, and one was to see orangutans. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he was really excited about the orang- seeing the orangutans in the wild yeah. Did you get to see any orangutans yeah.
1: yeah yeah
0: I think
3: so 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 he and his childhood best friend went went to Laos this first time and just brought as much medical supplies basically as they could carry and a couple of backpacks. That suddenly became mm-hmm. that that ended up becoming, well what if we could get a pallet out there, you know? And mm-hmm. from there my dad's kind of community organizing mind locked on and he started doing basically community organizing in Laos. Mm-hmm. So there were in internally displaced populations in Laos. There are many parts of Laos that are still uninhabitable uninhabitable because of the um, bombs, bombs, the unexploded ordnance. And so there are all these internally displaced populations, and and my dad just went to the village where Buntan's family lived and basically started with community organizing. What can we do? How can we make your lives better through organizing?
2: You dug a well. I remember looking. You got a well dug? And he went back with the bicycle, and yeah. it was a pretty rough place. I remember we took when we were riding up there. There was a bus ahead of us, uh, several miles, and uh, a Hmong guerrilla band slaughtered everyone on the bus. We missed we missed mm. it by I don't know twenty minutes or so. Oh. It was pretty intense. It wasn't just you know drop in and go to the local Target store. Mm-mm. It was it was it was something. And, and 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 you made that happen. And there was a whole band of us that went over there, and you had organizers on the ground in Laos. Mm -hmm. It was very impressive.
3: And the the kind of the fundamental thing about what he was doing, um, and I I worked for him a little bit when I was out of college, which was not a good idea. Sorry, Dad. (laughs) I love you very much. Uh, (laughs) uh, But uh, uh, the fundamental thing that he was doing was he had been doing work around the idea of reconciliation and had put on a big event in Fort Mason when I was like maybe 12 or 13 around that theme. And his His goal was to basically participate in kind of active service that gave the people who were being served the the power hmm. because usaid and Canadian aid groups and all these people who were doing you know charity work in Laos, which is a very poor country, were doing charity work, which, is in, relatively ineffective. It's an ineffective use of resources because the people don't have ownership over. This. These are yeah. things that we've that have been figured out somewhat since, but were pretty new ideas at the time. the The idea at the time was, well, yeah, you you raise a hundred thousand dollars and you build a hospital, but the question is, if it doesn't belong to the community, and the community isn't sufficiently integrated and they don't have the skills, then the hospital just you know after 2 years the sure. roof caves in and everybody is just like remember when they built that weird hospital
2: that's right you got to sustain it yeah d- Talk to me the, the coffee field the coffee operation i thought was very impressive yeah so there was there was mm. two
3: there was basically two in Laos specifically there was two big projects one was as you said my dad's friend from high school, Lee Felsenstein, who invented <laughs> the first portable computer, the, the Osborne, Osborne One. Yeah, yeah, the Osborne One, which my dad had one of. Uh-huh. I'm gonna say until he got the he got his PTSD certification, he still had he still writing in WordStar on the <laughs> <laughs> on the four-inch screen of the Osborne One, which is like the size uh-huh. of a suitcase. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, yeah, so it started with they wanted communications, that was their goal. So it was to build a system that gave them community owned ability to communicate uh, so that they could arrange reparation, uh, arrange um, uh, payments from uh, people in the Lao diaspora, which is a big source of income, um, but was very difficult to arrange for people who didn't live in the city. So they have Lao people living in whatever Minnesota or in other parts Mm -hmm. of Asia, and they needed to send money home. So they needed a way to talk to people besides a motorcycle comes through once a week. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and to know what their, most importantly, financially, to know what their crops were worth. Yeah. Because they it, were getting ripped off. Exactly. So yeah. some, they would sell, they'd, 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 they, almost everybody was a <laughs> subsistence farmer. So they were selling their a little bit of extra to the people who came through. Um, but the people who came through knew what the market price was in Vientiane and they didn't so they needed the their the information imbalance was leading the farmers who were growing the crops the poorest people to lose and if they know what the market price is in Vientiane they can say well just give me 90% of the market price or 80% of the market price if they don't then they just have to take what's offered to them that's right mm-hmm. no
2: and Lee. so it was a computer
3: yeah. that w- had a battery that was powered by a stationary bicycle that was that used Wi-Fi to uh, and this was when Wi-Fi was felt like a brand new technology. Absolutely. directional mm-hmm. Wi-Fi to point at the nearest uh, telecom which was at a sort of regional hospital what was mm-hmm. it, like 20 miles I, or something. I read the right? story yeah. they
1: strapped it on a tree. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: Actually Lee, you and I walked up that freaking hill a, a long hill with a with a soldier who mm-hmm. had an ak over his shoulder and was wearing flip-flops like the kind you wear in a, in a shower and and he was faster and better than us and this was a rough yeah. hill we climbed to the top and watched a couple of guys bang these wi-fi cars on a on the top of a bamboo tree uh and you were so happy to see that i could it, 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 uh-huh. tell me about why why you cared so much because i that came through for me in every step of the way on that trip
0: well I feel like Ryan um <clears throat> was a, I had an opportunity to to make amends mm-hmm. and the i knew a little bit about organizing so i understood that you know to spread it and, and also follow it and also get in front of it and i had been trained by qr hand and another and a couple of other guys um qr hand was a is it was the best community organizer i knew in the world and i've ever seen Mm. and he he trained me before i went to Vietnam. and uh
3: but you were saying it was a way to it was a way to make amends.
0: Yeah, um, I had been uh, on a carrier, a USS Ranger. Um, you know, I, I was against the war, but you know, I was on that carrier, and so I didn't do anything that was going to get me thrown off the bus. But the it was.
2: It got to you. Yeah. It got to you, and it got under your skin. And Buntan got under your skin, and she made you want to act, didn't it?
0: Mm-hmm. If you sp- spend much time in a village, or at least what from my experience was that, you know, you get make friends. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, even though we come from very different cultures, um, that was irrelevant. The fact is we could feel like we had friends, you know. To each
3: oh. other How the thing you? that I the thing that I remember really vividly because this was happening when I was like 15 16 is well there's two things one is that my dad's when my dad started doing this his health changed dramatically and it didn't it was no not a the you know there's no cure for PTSD mm-hmm. and my dad is stru- you know, as long as I have known him, he's that has been a huge part 100%. of his life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 100 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> percent crazy and proud. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and clear about it. Yeah. and But um, but, you know, I remember that after his first trip, he told me that was the first time that he had slept through the night without medication. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's one thing that I remember that it. It really, it was not a cure for the things that were difficult for him and for us, but um, it changed changed him. It gave him some of what he had been hoping to achieve through his work, I think, for himself. You know, his goals were external, but, you know, he wanted something for himself, too. And um, also... Boonton, who he founded it with, and her family became, who were, you know, much of this village, became my dad's family. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember how deeply he felt that when I was a teenager that, you know, Boonton was his sister and her family was his family. And that wasn't anything I had ever heard my dad say. And, you know, uh, like me, I mean, you know, my dad maybe uh, somewhat emotionally uh, uh, alienated through family trauma. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, I think that to be in this place where um, he knew he was helping and he was helping people that, and and having this relationship with them that didn't or couldn't have with his own immediate family, mm-hmm. um, uh, and um, that that that's the emotional piece that I remember that was different from even you know as much as he loved and loves ed who was his best friend and loved that work like that or loved the all the other organizing that i saw him do as a kid like the thing that i remember most about jai is that it felt like he was he was building uh uh he was doing service to his his family there for his family there that was my dad's, I mean, I remember as a teenager, him one day, uh, I think maybe we were trying to decide where I should go to college or what I wanted to do, what kind of, maybe I was just out of college and I needed to get a, I needed to figure out what I wanted to do for a job or something, and my dad was like, my dad got out his fat markers and his poster board was <laughs> like, okay, let's mind map this. <laughs> he community <laughs> organized it. Yeah, he community <laughs> organized it, um, <laughs> And I think that was like, that really is, you know, I didn't understand, I don't think I understood the the depth of difference in my dad's approach to his work relative to the other folks who were on the ground from outside of Laos until I worked for my dad after college a little bit and went and worked in Laos for a few weeks and met some uh, met some government aid guys from Laos. Uh, you know, so-called Western countries. Oh, yeah. And they were nice folks who were really doing their best. It wasn't that. um, You know, nobody goes into international development to make people's lives worse, but um, it was obvious that it it had not occurred to them that they didn't have the answer. Did it...
1: Doing three-penny opera and improv, it must not have felt like you were following in his footsteps, but... (laughs) Were you absorbing the lessons that, uh, that, that he
3: was... That yeah, he was I mean, I think, like, talking about, you know, talking about all these people that I interview who are artists and went into art because they felt like they had to make... Because they felt like they had to break out of something. It was unquestioned by both of my parents... Who had each paid tremendous costs to um, have their own lives separate from their families and their families' expectations of what their lives would be? Um, you know, as as older baby boomers or just before baby boomers, both born during World War II, and you know, my my mom's parents didn't speak to her when she went to college, and um, you know, mm-hmm. my my dad. Uh, You know, my dad had his own problems with his parents and everybody came to San Francisco like anyone did, not not necessarily because they were hippies, but because it was a place where you could make your own life. And so my life was always predicated on the expectation that whatever I did with my life was okay. It also, I've also always felt a very in becoming a business person, which is not what I expected, you know, like we're talking about me as a, like my, my, I pay my mortgage by running a company, you know? And, um, and it, I feel very, I, I both have never felt like my parents wanted me to do anything other than the things I really cared about in the world. And I never felt like, I never felt like I was anything less than responsible for being moral in doing so. Mm-hmm. And maybe my dad would have liked for me to, you know, continue to die when he retired if I had not had other things going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that in a weird way, like it's, I mean, it seems like a big claim for me to make about my dumb dick joke p- comedy podcast network. But like it is absolutely inspired by my dad's life and career in that I see my work as a way to directly affect people's lives and make them better and that I see, I I feel a very deep central responsibility not to make people's lives worse through my work and I also see much of what I do as a a kind of organizing Mm. Um, and you know that i mean we we do you know things that you would say oh that's a sure that's a direct social good whatever you know like we we raised a 100 grand this year for the national immigrants law center but but that's not what i mean i mean like i think that like the things that i understand about how you connect people to a cause and move them towards that goal um are things that I learned from my dad and that's the basis of everything that I've ever done. You know, that's the reason that that's the reason that people will send us five bucks a month is because they believe in what we believe in and they want to make it, it be in the world. And the reason that we're able to do it is because we have that kind of breadth that my dad was talking about building in a village in Laos. We had that connection to this group of you know, I, I don't have a, to make one ad-buying guy happy. I have to make a difference in the life of 10,000 or 25,000 people who are the people who, you know, pay to keep our lights on.
1: Well, oh, go ahead, Kevin. Because
3: I mean, it, it
2: of what had happened, Lee, because of the, the, the trauma you— have experienced in your life, and then the 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 work that you did, you you got social justice baked into your
3: soul, Jesse. It, yeah, it my, seems like that. My ther- my therapist was, uh, I think my therapist probably thinks thinks of it as a negative <laughs> <laughs> for my mental health <laughs> that I like feel like I I want to I bear this as a sort of what I want to have in all my life. When maybe I should just be like, oh look, mm-hmm. I got rich making people laugh about dicks. I have um, to say,
1: dick dick jokes is a very maybe
3: forty percent of your show. Okay, thank, <laughs> you. thank you. it really depends on it really depends uh, on the program. There's not a lot of dick jokes. Laser on full, so dong.
1: I think I can get a laser, laser dong don, t-shirt yeah. through.
3: Yeah. What, commu- <laughs> yeah. what comedian doesn't laser like a dick joke?
1: <laughs> well, I I have to say that um, you know I've listened to your work for years, Jesse, and been influenced by it, and I've read about you lee and and heard about you through kevin and meeting you guys i can see where the pieces fit together Mm -hmm. so i appreciate you both coming in and uh lee you're always welcome here if you want to if it'll bring you happiness you want to come by here with me and kevin and we'll dig through these archives and find more lee thorne in there i gotta find that photo of you at this gi coffee shop (laughs) that's going to be my new uh my new yeah. William Shatner killer whale, or
3: Peter. <laughs> what if? What if just my stepmother Bernie just sends him here to live? Is that okay? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Bernie, we could do a cot
2: back. Bernie, this the, yeah. the, the, the Spitfire Irish gal. You yeah. got lucky on that one. Yeah.
1: <laughs> there was a guy here, Jesse, um, who worked here, who uh, Shawshank Redemption style took one musical instrument, chord, amp down here at a time set up a band and recorded an entire album down here without anybody at the Chronicle knowing. <laughs> Holy cow. That's why I set up this podcast studio down here because at the time no one wanted me to do it and I just went down and practiced and so um anyway, uh you're always welcome here Lee and I hope Thank you'll you. come back and and dig around these archives with me and Kevin sometime because it's history. And uh and Jesse you're you're obviously always welcome here too. We didn't even get to the 49er photos. <laughs> So um, I hope you'll come back. You don't have to come on my podcast, but if you just want to look around. and uh, Yeah, next,
3: next time I'm back, we're just going to go to the I section of the photo morgue and look for It's It Pictures. It's It oh, Pictures. We, we both treasure. own
1: an It's It t-shirt. I've heard him talk Do about it on his L.A. I podcast.
0: A, I have
3: a uh, It's It t-shirt and an It's It sweatshirt.
1: Oh, I want one.
3: Oh. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) if anyone is listening from it's it my only dream in life is to be is to be a brand ambassador for it's it please yes i'll do anything all right well we'll, we're gonna close with it's it's
1: that'll be what we pick up with next time thank you both for coming i appreciate you coming on the podcast thank you so much peter yeah Uh, thank uh, you kevin
2: thanks a lot this has been really fun
1: all right thanks guys There are and I think you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to our guests, Jesse Thorne, Lee Thorne, and Kevin Fagan. This episode was produced by me, Peter Hartlob. Senior producer is King Kaufman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke. And our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Our music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album Community. Read our columns and subscribe to The Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. Chronicle Podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com podcasts with an S.